seems to me that tattooers today really try to get accepted by the mainstream. Kind of blows my mind because now you have this whole subculture tattooing that are doing like gangster tattoos and they ain't fucking gangsters. The FBI has us all in that federal thing and they're throwing down these pictures of me in these banks. I robbed 29 of them. Bert Grimm told Bob Shaw, Bob Shaw told Bob Roberts, Bob Roberts told me. This is where yellow and roses came from. To be grateful, that is the key to everything. My name is Steph Bastian. In my 10 years on the road, I've met many unique characters in the tattoo business, and they all have one thing in common, incredible stories. Stories of past times, personal growth, priceless experience, and of course, bizarre happenings. I want to share those stories with you. This is Tattoo Tales. Thank you for making the time. Oh yeah, yeah, no, thank you for inviting me. I dig it, I, I was, I'm real happy. Thank you so much for you and letting me come on. Awesome, what is your last name from? Uh, it's, it's Norwegian. Because I used to live in Norway and Denmark, so it sounded familiar. So I said, you must be from those places, you know? Yeah, yeah, uh, my family, came from Moss, Norway. There's actually N-homes in Moss that have contacted me online, and I'm sure I'm related to them. But um, the sad thing about my family is my family's like a real American family. They just threw their roots. By the time I got really interested in that stuff, I, I couldn't ask anybody. They're all gone. The very little that I got from my father before he died was that we were from Moss, Norway, and that my a uh, great-grandfather that came over was a pigeon racer. That's specific. <laughs> and that, that's it, man. That's it. Have you ever been to Norway? Yes and no. A layover flight. A layover flight. So for what? I don't know, an hour? Is that uh, something you want to do one day? Like go visit uh, a little bit? I had big plans. Every time. Usually what happens, okay, I've only been to Europe twice. First, I didn't even know if they'd let me go because of my felony bank robber. Um, but of course that's 30 years ago. So they did, it was no problem. But the first time I went on the tribal tour, I was kind of confined to that. The second time I went, I probably shouldn't have gone. That was when you and me were in Aachen, uh, last year because of my father and I had to deal with all that stuff. But I always have big plans to see a lot of places in Europe. Every time I go, that's all I think about is, is, you know, why don't I, I go, like, I get offers from Sweden, Norway. I'll make it up there. It's such a beautiful country, like, nature-wise. It has some places that I've seen something similar, a little different, but similar only in New Zealand, you know? And really? there are many places I haven't been, but in some areas, the nature is so wild, which is, like, breathtaking. The fjords and the mountains, it's insane. It's so pretty. And you don't need to go that far because compared to the U.S., it's a fairly small country, you know? So you have, like a one hour and a half flight or one hour or like eight hours train and you're in the middle of fjords and nature and stuff you know it's it's yeah. incredible man it's incredible and then you've been to new zealand too huh 
Yeah, a few times, yeah. Yeah, well, what, I heard the sky in New Zealand. The night stars look very different than anywhere else. I don't know why, but, like, the sunsets there are insane. Like, really? the sky every night is on fire, you know? And I don't see that. And I and I travel a lot. In the last two years, I change one country a week, you know? So I, I go around, but, man, like, the sky is on fire. It's a place that has a different type of beauty than what I'm used to, to, like, big capitals in Europe and stuff. But right. that type of beauty that they have is so fulfilling because it's nature and it's uh, people care for the environment. It's a good energy. Everybody's so friendly. So it's it's a it's a different type of beauty, but it's very charming. It's a place that you go there, you might be like, hmm, I could live here. You know? It's so I, yeah, I have heard it's really wonderful there. I have heard that. Where are you from originally? Where did you grow up? I was born in Boulder, Colorado, and I lived there till I was 12 or 13. And uh, uh, then I was on my own on the streets and I hitchhiked across the country. Ameri- I don't know how many times, four or five times, me and a friend. We were very young, very young. Um, I first hitchhiked to New Jersey uh, and learned to surf. And then I hitchhiked to California. It was all surfing. Everything was surfing. Um, the first couple of years of my life on the street were uh, surfing. And then I got into punk rock music. And everything else, I moved to L.A. and I, I think I was uh, 14, maybe 15, 14. And that was it. I got heavily into punk rock, heavily. That's how I found tattooing through punk rock, everything. In punk rock, I lived near Long Beach and um, I lived in a place called Nordic Conquest. And that was with Steve Human, who played bass later in the Vandals. I was there when they formed the Vandals, but... We lived kind of near the pike, and and it was almost like a given that you that even if you weren't into punk rock, if you lived in Long Beach, you you would go to the pike and get tattooed. Every fucking person I knew in Long Beach had at least one tattoo. Some of them only this big, but every single person in the '70s and '80s would go to the pike, and those guys really embraced us. Uh, uh, Bob Shaw and Colonel Todd and. Uh, uh, whoever, Jane, Biker Jane, she later became Calamity Jane. They really embraced us, I think because, you know, tattooers then even were kind of different. And when they see punkers are on the fringe of society just like them. So, you know, you would think that maybe you'd walk in there with fucking blue hair or food coloring in your hair because you, you couldn't even buy hair dye then. We would use food coloring. I think there were two colors, Capri Blue and pine green, maybe. And so, you know, we put food coloring in our hair and hope it wouldn't rain because it did. <laughs> yeah, man. So, but when we went in, went in there, they uh, they embraced us. You know, they, they really did. Tattooers embraced punkers because once tattooing and punk rock really wrapped together, it created a lot. Uh, a lot of the tattooers in the 90s found it through punk rock. You know, there was a real birth, a real gestation happened there with punk rock and tattooing. And I know it started at the pike because those young first tat- people tattooed, then other punkers would see us tattooed, at least in America, mine would see us. And then they would want to get tattoos because I, I mean, I, I had a lot of my arms covered. There's pictures of me like at 17 and stuff where I had a lot of my arms covered. They never asked me for an ID, anything. You found your tribe, so to speak. Absolutely. Well, punk rock, I always say that, 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 you know, L.A. punk rock was like my tribe. But but with tattooing, there was something happening there because 
because I believe that tattooers then, I don't know about now, because it seems to me that tattooers today really try to get accepted by the mainstream. And I just think they should understand. I'm not saying that it can't be acceptable to some degree, but the true powers that be will never accept tattooing because it's a tribal marking your body. You dig? I'm not, I'm not saying that, you know, there's going to be politicians with tattoos and there's going to be, but I'm saying truly embrace it like some people, I guess, want. I don't think it ever will be. There will always be hanky-panky. Is a good example. You know, he's knighted. He's, I love fucking Hanky. I don't like him. I love him. And he's got his hand in so many pies, but there's a part of him that he does not buy into. He's him. And you accept it or you don't. And they accept it. Or, you dig what I'm saying? Like, yeah, um, yeah. I, inter I interview him for, uh, I know him, I interview him as well uh, for an episode. And, you know, he's a pirate. You know, I, he's a full pirate. I can't tell you. I just really admire him we we me and hanky really hit it off you know i don't care about much the only thing i truly care about is you be yourself real real other than that it doesn't fucking matter i don't give a fuck what it is i'm gonna put a shampoo bottle up your butt go ahead but just own it own it you did so i think with uh tattooers back to the i think that when they first saw punkers they were like outsiders just like us <laughs> You know what I mean? Like, like no matter what. And uh, then slowly, you know, a few of us started like apprenticing or, or picking up the machines or asking them or sweeping up. And the next thing you know, look at it today. I mean, I don't know of too many people somehow that both of those things weren't involved in their life. And it's in our generation, in the generation of 40 to 60, I guess. When I was in 12 years old, I was in a group home the third street group home. It's the first time I ever saw a tattoo. It's the first night I was in the group home. We all ate dinner and there was a gang banger. And I wish I could remember his name because I can remember a lot of their names, Alvin, all of them, but I can't. And he had a heart tattooed here and I had never seen one before. And I'm like, what is that? And he said, oh, it's a tattoo. We'll show you how to do them after dinner. And my grandfather, my grandfather had just died. And my grandfather had taught me how to draw. He was uh, into drawing World War I airplanes. It's the first thing he taught me to draw. And uh, he had died. And he was like the linchpin of my family. And our family just disintegrated. Like without him to keep everyone together, that was kind of it. Um, some of us, like my, my brother went with my grandmother. And, you know, my sister went with my mom. That, anyway... I ended up in the group home, and uh, that was the first time I saw tattoos. And I, I started doing them because I could draw. The they would have me. We were just hand poking them. But this is 1976, so by the time 79 or whatever, by the time I got to the pike, I just wanted cover ups. And and like I uh, got a hot stuff. Bob Shaw did it was a cover up. It said Led Zepp underneath it. What kind of punk rock kid has Led Zepp tattooed on his arm? Nice. <laughs> Uh, you dig like I had to cover that. So, <laughs> <laughs> and then when did you go from there? I guess you get more involved and and. Oh yeah. Um. Well, no, because a big thing happened is is drugs. I got heavily into you know because of punk rock. I always looked up to you know they just did this documentary that on Amazon. You know, uh, Tattoo Uber Alice, the 
Mm-hmm. Guys, uh, and, you know, it's the first time anyone asked me, like, what you are now. Most of the time we never get there. But, you know, I had a really big uh, intravenous heroin problem. I really looked up. I was always a musician. I have a record out, you know, and most people know that about me. I play, and I've always had a, a real, like, almost not so much anymore, of course, not in the last 20 years. But as a kid, I really looked up to, like, Keith Richards, Sid Vicious, Jimmy Pay, addicts. They're yeah. addicts. And that cool Johnny Thunders, you know, the whole nodding out, you know, that whole thing. So what happened in my life was heroin went from a small thing to totally dominating my entire existence. It's funny because when you're you're a kid and you're an addict, okay, I was playing in the Flower Leopards and we're, we're, we've got a record out and we're fucking touring. We used to tour with Social Distortion. Uh, we teamed up with them on a couple of tours. It just fit well together. So so you're on tour and, you know, it's wonderful. You're in other cities and it's punk rock, so it's not major or anything. But you never think that the dope eventually will take that all away from you. But it does. And, you know, you meet older dope fiends and they would uh, tell you things like uh, a guy dope fiend eventually robs, a girl dope fiend eventually sells her ass on the street and becomes a hooker. And, you know, you hear those things and you think to yourself as you're shooting up, you think, ah, that'll never happen to me. No way, you know, no way. I'm going to be a rock star. I'm going to sell a million albums. I'm going to fucking, and then one day you're there. You're downtown and you're hooked and you've been hooked a long time. You got no money, no avenue to get anymore. You can't lie. Nobody's going to, your guitars are all pawned. You're fucking homeless. And, uh, you know, you rob that bank or you rob that pharmacy or, you know, and so, so anyway, not to get too far ahead, but what happened was drugs intersected. Had I not been a heroin addict, then maybe what would have happened is I would have swept up at the tattoo shops, kept the job, and had a long, illustrious career tattooing. Or maybe the bands would have took off because a lot of friends of mine ended up being big famous, but heroin um, had other plans for me. And seriously, thank God. Because I tell you, the person I am today is because of that. I wouldn't change it for the world. I wouldn't change it. Because, you know, people always think, and I do too, I'm, I, money, money's great. Having a lot of money, think about it. You know, it, money, money's freedom in ways. Because you can just buy it. But money does not equate to wealth. Some of the happiest times I've ever had or some of the, the best moments in my life were not because I had a big pimp roll in my pocket. You did. I could have been sleeping on a couch. It does not equate to wealth. And it's hard to figure that out. It makes things better. The rent's paid. You know, you don't fucking live in a tent. But what people lose sight of is I think they somehow equate that to wealth. And, and you know, most of the wealthy people I know, once you get behind that facade they have up, their lives are pretty fucked up, man. Their kids are fucked up. They're, you know, they're at, you know, not all of them got, you know, everyone's different, but, um, I think maybe hadn't heroin, but you know, it had other plans for me. I had to go to prison and, uh, sit out a decade, basically 18 till 30. Not, I, I fell actually when I was 22, but I was already getting in trouble at 18. I had been in juvenile hall at 
12, then again at 15, then again at 17. And then I had a small run like with the Flower Leopards and Punk Rock and all that. And then I caught the bank robberies and, uh, and sat out the decade. But it was great. Actually, it's really tied into tattooing. I, I've told the story before, but there was a tattooer named uh, John Sandler, but everyone called him Horse. And uh, he wrote Ed Hardy in the 70s and started sending his artwork. And this is when Jack and Charlie and everybody was like showing Ed and Malone single needle tattooing. It was like the birth of that. So Ed was hot to get some hot single needle tattooer. And he started communicating with Horace. And when Horace got out of San Quentin, he went to work at Tattoo City. And that's how I know Bob is kind of through Horace. I didn't meet Bob through Horace, but a lot of our, the depth of our friendship came because of Horace, because Horace taught me how to tattoo. And, but uh, when I met Horace, he was out and he had stolen uh, Mark Mahoney's leather jacket. I didn't know he stole it, though. But I guess he had stolen. But I looked up to him a little bit. He's a bank robber. and He's a really nice guy. Bob always says he had a heart, but he was a really good single needle tattooer. So I think he worked for Tattoo City for a while. And then Ed fired him, of course, because he's a fuck up. I mean, this guy came from a rich family in Palos Verdes. Really nice guy. Very talented artist. He did a back piece in the joint of a bank robbery, like Old West cowboys coming. It was just fucking amazing. Was it all with like homemade machines, right? That's what Bob said. When he first went to Tattoo City, Horse, Horse couldn't use coil machines. <laughs> Tried to tattoo with his little joint machine and Ed and them would say, dude, you can't do that here. You have to use these machines. He eventually got it. But you know, Horse was the kind of guy, me and him were in prison together too. We were sellies. Like I knew him on the street, then he gets busted. Then he had taught me about bank robberies. So a year or something goes by, and I remember that. And then I robbed banks. We were in Terminal Island. We were sellies in Terminal Island. So I knew him on the street. Then I knew him in the joint. But Horace is the kind of guy that has everything going for him. He gets out. He opens a shop. He's rolling. Customers coming in. This is like in 89, maybe. Goes for a drive in his car with his old lady, gets pulled over by the cops, and ends up getting shot by them in the head. But my thing is, how the fuck does that always happen to you? I get pulled over a hundred times. They don't shoot me. I open a tattoo shop and just happens. You open a tattoo shop and it burns down or fucking, you know, it's just like some weird magnet for just crazy shit. You know, he's dead now. Mahoney. I didn't know it, but Mahoney's the guy that told me he died. Yeah, Horace was doing really good, living in a uh, long-term rehab, had a job at, like, Goodwill or, like, Salvation Army, was getting all these really nice clothes, wearing them, and he used dope, and, and it killed him. But I don't know how we got off from that, but he was kind of my entree into uh, professional tattooing with Horace. After I got out of the joint, the co-ops told me I couldn't tattoo that they were dins of iniquity. This is 93. It's like, well, I was aching to get out and, and tattoo. I had tattooed the whole time in the joint. And so I get out and my pro officer, he's reading my pre-sentence interview and you know, all the investigation the FBI did on me. Only job I ever had was either a guitar player in the Flower Leopards 
or a punk rock band or a, a tattooer. And the first thing he said to me is, you ain't working in a tattoo shop, Shane. They're dens of iniquity. You're going to get a real job. And I mean, what do I, I can't argue that. I mean, you could, you could argue and you could say, yeah, no, fuck you. You know, it's a real legitimate job. It's an occupation. And he'd go, yeah, no problem here. Let me see how these handcuffs fit on you. Okay. Yeah. Hey. You know, so I got a job jackhammering and I uh, started oil painting instead of tattooing. I didn't tattoo out of the house. I wanted to get away, which maybe was a mistake. I don't know, but I wanted to get away from prison style tattooing. I wanted to get back to like traditional, you know what I'm saying? Like, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um, I could have maybe done it out of the house. And I, I did some, I tattooed a few people. If people really asked me, I would, I, I would just use joint machines. I would make myself, but, um, I, I wanted away from that. And I don't know, maybe it was just eight years of doing it. I don't know. I just wanted away. Now I do it again more because people want it you know it kind of blows my mind because now you have this whole subculture tattooing that are doing like gangster tattoos and they ain't fucking gangsters they're doing <laughs> joint tattoos and they ain't never been fucking locked up what the fuck you know what is it? it's like it's like almost like a, a comedy skit it's funny because i think when you've been through that you want away from it you dig like at least for a period of time you want away there is not that romance that is like fictionalized in oh, people's heads, like oh gangster, because you don't know where your gangster is. I have some friends without naming, but friends from the from California and stuff that went through, you know, all the gang stuff because that's where they grew up. And either you backed up by some of them or all of them fuck with you. So you have to join a gang eventually, and then you know they end up in jail, and then blah blah blah, associated with certain groups and stuff, and. You know, when you listen to these people, like yourself, like these other friends of mine, you realize how there's no romance in that, you know? It's just something that you try perhaps to get away as much as you can. All, all I hear from these friends of mine is like, listen, I'm busting my ass off so that my kids will never have to go through that. So there's nothing cool. The only cool thing is in Instagram, you know, oh, that's so cool, it's gangsters. Like, no, because you don't know what real gangster is. Yeah, that's right. right? That's right. It, it, that's right. Me, it's necessity, survival. As far as that goes, you know, it, it, it's an instinct I had and I got deep in all of it, especially in prison, deep. But that's absolutely true. When I, I mean, my kids, I'm so grateful. My grandkids, that is the farthest thing. You know, they'll say, oh, yeah, grandpa or, you know, papa, he did time. And I, yeah, I did it for all of us. So no one else has to fucking do it. But yeah, I think it looks really good in a photograph, but... Uh, not if you have to pay that price for it. Right, yeah. right. Let me let me ask you one thing, if it's not too... Just tell me if it's too much. Uh, because obviously, you know, experiences like this, like you spend some time locked up and all of that, obviously something you don't wish on anybody, but I would imagine that would have a deep impact in you if you manage to get out of that, because some people never do it, just either get killed or keep going back into this life of crime and stuff. But if you manage to get out of it, I guess that is such a profound experience that it's going to leave you something apart from all the bad things which, you know, come with it. But what would you say that for your own experience that you learned from that experience? It was the best thing that ever happened to me. I'll tell you exactly what I learned. Having been on the street since I was 12 or 13, no father as a role model, I actually grew into a man. I learned 
to be responsible for my actions. Whatever I do, I pay the price for. I'm not saying I didn't do wrong or bad things. I'm a human being. I fuck up. But that I was responsible for myself to be accountable. I guess that's the word, to be accountable. Um, positive things, I knew that I could storm any weather like this. You know what I mean? I'm going to make it through. This is nothing. I'll make it through because of what I, where I've been. One thing I, 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 I talk to Karen sometimes about this and other people, and she did time too. And I, I, I'm always like, a lot of these people live fake lives. They really do. That there's something, you know, I'm me. This is me. 24 hours a day, 100% of the time, you're going to get me. And I think prison had a lot. You know what I mean? I don't think everybody gets that because, you know, what do they have? In America, they have like a 90% return rate. I do. I have two friends, maybe three, but I'm not in touch with one of them that ever stayed out. All the rest of them, I can't even talk to them because they're in that gangster. They're doing that shit. I don't want anything to do with that. To be accountable, man, because in there, you got to be accountable. You really do. You have to come through with what you say you're going to do. And, and I think out here, it's no problem to be fake out here. I mean, you see it all the time, like on Instagram or... Yeah, I guess you can't hide in there. Huh? Yeah. I, There's no I, place I, to hide. I think you can for a degree if you, like, go into protective custody or check in or... or but if you're just going to make it, if you're going to do it correctly, make it through it. You're, yeah, you're, 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 you're not going to... You know, somebody said something to me one time recently, maybe in the last year or two, something about my Instagram that I don't come off like I really am. And I was like, what the fuck are you, on? you know what I mean? Like, like that is me. Every time I do one of those poop blood videos or any of that shit, I wing it. It's right off the cuff. At that moment, it is the way I feel. What I think with that particular person, that person, I know it. He, it's a very schmarmy, like uh, glad handing kind of motherfucker. And I think that he, isn't real so then when he sees in other people is what he really sees. the thing is sometimes uh, and that gets even worse through for example text messages which is even worse because there is nothing to see but even on the instagram or whatever everything that is not direct contact uh it can bring out in people to see what they want to see you know so the thing is the message or the video or the words are going to be perceived by the person from the place where they're at and i yeah. say this because i had some i have a few fall off in the last years with some people. And when I look back, I'm like, what the fuck happened? You know, because what you said was nothing like they wanted to make, but they see what they want to see. So if, they, if you're in a place of pride or jealousy or blame or whatever, you know, you're going to read whatever you want to read in that message, even if it has nothing to do. So then that creates like, like this guy you're talking about, you know, so. Oh, no, I've been through that a few times. I, I always, it shocks me. I mean, because I've done things and had people think was talking about them. And I'm telling you, I it was the last person on my mind was them. But somehow, like from what you say, at their point of view where they're at, they, they read into what. See, the thing about being a human being, it's really wild because it's very, we're very self. Everything is about us. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah very hard for us they had that saying what is it people only ask you how you're doing so they don't have to let on how little they really care all about us you know uh i forget that you know and i've had i have literally had people call me and go i know you're talking about me and i'm like 
dude, I'm not. It has nothing. Yeah. I wasn't even thinking about you. Well, you, you know, know it's, the sa- it's the same thing like when, let's say, just to make a stupid example, but somebody has a weight complex, you know, whatever. So they're very self-conscious about that. And you're like, oh, that's a nice T-shirt. It's like, did you call me fat? It's like, what? <laughs> you yeah, know, because right. you your brain is just going there again and again, you know, so, yeah. You can't even get them to believe that you aren't talking about them. I mean, I've literally have riffs with people that were fr- that still to this day. People always say it's always in everything, but I saw it mostly in in tattooing. Tattooing, to some degree, it is a very ego-driven. Or, or no, no, no. Tattooing can be an ego-driven occupation. There are many pockets of people that aren't. But there are also many pockets of people. I mean, it is all, look how clean I did my outline. Look how, you know, rather than my experience with my customers is always me and them. I don't do the tattoo for the Instagram picture. I don't do the tattoo so even you or even Hanky or Bob or whoever's going to go, wow, nice tattoo. They probably won't anyway. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. I think that there's a fair amount of people in this industry that are not doing it for themselves or their customer they're doing it well i guess they are doing it for themselves for their ego more you dig I yeah mean, sometimes sometimes especially this is this is well why i do this and why i want to share you know the the life experience of people like yourself because again not to put everybody in the same pocket but sure. sometimes in the younger generation because that you didn't go through a certain process of learning or certain hardships uh you don't have time to develop or space to develop that sort of appreciation, you know, and uh, there is a sort of a self-entitlement. So sometimes, you know, some, some, again, just some that I noticed, tend to forget that it's not a medium to show the world how awesome you are, but it's a, you are in a service industry, you know, and I met some people sometimes tattooing for four years and like, oh, how is it possible that I did not get into the London convention, like such a self-entitlement, like, listen, <laughs> you know what that takes to get in there and you feel like they own it to you because they didn't have to go through you know a certain process i guess uh, look abs it's it's wild but but why i say i'm not sure if it's just tattooing because when i talk to people in other guild labor they say it's in motorcycle building or you dig they say it's in that it's in chefs in cooking same kind of bullshit you, you follow mm. me I only see it because this is what I do. So I see it in this. I guess I see it in musicians too, to some degree. But, but you know, I've been saying that forever. We're a service industry. We are a art based on copying. Yes, you can be original. I've seen people come up with new ideas, but what always blows my mind, and it happens, somebody gets a design that somebody painted in 1920, Owen Jensen, uh, Grimshaw, they do it. Then that's theirs. And they get upset when someone else does the same fucking design. And it's like, dude, where did you get it from? You know what I mean? <laughs> I bless you, but it ain't even yours. You know, it's very rarely that you see people with their own voice, complete voice in this. And and what is it? You're, you're, you kind of touched on it. To some degree, you can. It can be whatever you want it to be. So 
But, you know, it's really not the medium to be in for your own creative or ego. And then you got groups of people that are mad at this group of people because they don't this scene or this guy doesn't. I mean, hey, I get it. I, I get it. I, I'm a coil guy. You know what I mean? I get it. But at some point, it's like you're almost looking for the bus to come down a one-way street the wrong way, man. The ride's over here. You can look all day over there, but it's coming this way. You dig? So why don't you just worry? You know what I mean? Like, like yes. I get they send me things because I do these videos and they're like, Shane, what do you think about this? And what they really want is me to rant about something they are passionate. One thing I'm really tripping on and I need to kind of relax is, you know, these fucking people trying to get with the health organization to put these face shields and these gloves, just shut up. You know, I don't want to dress like that to go to work. I'm a tattooer, so I don't have to fucking, you know, the minute you're going to make me do the whole surgeon thing, I'm going to do something else. What we need to do is we need to make them understand that we are already so clean. We don't need the scrubs. To- I recently interviewed a girl called Anna Wolf. She's very involved with the, health regulations in the states at least in the state where she's from because what she trying to make very clear is that if we do not get involved and you're like no i want to be fucking underground cool if you do not the government already smelled the money so the money the government is involved and it's going to get more involved it's not going to go backward it's going to just go forward so from now on somebody's going to make a law because that's what's going to happen so it's either going to be you or them and she was saying that you know she had people from the government going to her shop and obviously, and I've seen this in Denmark, in Spain, I've seen this all over the place. They have no fucking clue. So the people that make the laws, they don't know. She said that they went to her shop and they touched the contaminated stuff. And with that, then they touched their glasses and then they touched the clean station and then a mobile. And they're like, what the fuck are you doing? She was freaking out. And you can tell that they have no idea. So the thing is, you know, you got to get involved because then otherwise they think they know and they make you wear the silly stuff and just because they don't know <laughs> right. no yeah. no it's, it's true i had license number four in los angeles because for many years you didn't have to have one but we got them just so they were on the wall so you know if some shishi customers you dig what i'm saying that we were mm-hmm. you know, but when it became that you had to um they changed my number Fuckers. I like that number. Anyway, um, <laughs> though, though, right? Um, the guy comes there. When he comes there, he's like, hey, Shane's not here, is he? Because they don't know what the fuck they're doing. So they, they tell you one time, hey, keep a clean room and keep a dirty room. You do keep a clean room for the, you know, and then you put your ultrasonic in. And then yeah. the next time, they fucking tell you to put them together. And you're like, dude, that's like insane that fucking ultrasonic is spitting shit you realize they got the wrong people driving that car man and you are right about that if you don't do it someone else will but the other thing is as i'm always been real big is is okay an example there's a convention and we're all tattooing and the irs comes and they want everyone's numbers Mostly young tattooers are jumping up going, here, let me give you mine, because they want something on a piece of paper, officially in the government. I am a tattooer. Look, look, Mm. I'm labeled. You dig what I'm saying? Me, my friends, we're trying to hide from them. 
You know, I mean, we give the government, we pay, eat it, but we ain't trying to fucking come take this from us. Come take, like, I think, I think the problem now in America with taxes is they have the people actually believing it's not their money. What I always tell people is, man, that's your money. When they take a 30 year fucking paycheck to fix the road or fix the fucking hospital, do you feel like you're getting that money's worth? No, because they have propaganda like there's only two things certain in life, death and taxes. It's supposed to be your money. You know, this this whole thing that's happening right now, things are never going to be the same. I don't know about in tattooing in anything. And I think 80% of it is people. You dig their interpretation, just like we said that people read into stuff that we post or they read a text wrong or, you know, you're going to have a group of people that are terrified of it. You're going to have a group of people that don't believe it's real. You're going to have a group of people that are mad if you don't believe it's real. You're going to have a group of people that are going to call these guys pussies if they, you know, it's just, it's just, just things are never going to be the same. And I, you know, I, I maybe, maybe it's wrong, you know, I don't know, but I really do not want to dress like a dentist. Tattoo. Let me recap a second. You said you went to, you've been almost forced, you know, to get another job, right? So you went jackhammer. Um, Ran a jackhammer, yeah. Yeah, jackhammer. What after that? The earthquake in LA happened. And what happened is this this is a good story. When I got out of the joint, my kids, my daughters, okay, I robbed the banks with the mother of my, my daughters, Casey Cola Crash. She's like a big punk rocker. She had the suicide pact with Darby Crash of the Germs when he died. She lived, he died. Um, how I got close with her was at Okie Dogs and all these places we would hang out. People would blame her for Darby's death. So they would constantly go, it's your fault. And they beat her up even, dudes, girls, everyone. And I knew Darby. And that guy used to talk about killing himself all the time. So if it wasn't her, it would have been someone else. But see, she's left, so they're blaming her. So anyway, I would defend her, and she's 12 years older than me. We end up together. We robbed the banks together. When they catch us, they catch us. My kids are with me, everything. My kids are like a newborn infant and four. And uh, the FBI has us all in that federal thing, and they're throwing down these pictures of me in these banks. I robbed 29 of them. So they have all these photos of me, and they want me to sign the photos and say, this is me on such and such a day. And I tell them the only way I'll sign those is if they can walk out of here right now. You let her and those kids leave, and I'll sign every fucking photo you have and say it's me. So they do. They, they get to go in the corner and they talk and they come back. And I go, no, I want to literally physically see her leave here. So they literally walk me to a, like a, the second floor. There's like a balcony and they let me watch her leave the federal building. Okay, cool. I sign all their fucking things in my fucking dope fiend mind. I think, oh, well, Casey will go and raise the kids. And I'll go to prison and eventually I'll get out and I'll throw the white picket fence and you know we'll grow fucking sunflowers and go skipping through the daffodils well she took the kids and maybe a couple weeks later a couple days left them on a friend's doorstep and we never saw her again so when i got out why i'm saying all this is when i got out the first night i was out i went to the foster home they were living at i got picked up from the airport and 
I got driven to see them. I hadn't seen them. That's, I just wanted to see my daughters. They're living in a house with 60 cats living inside the house. Holy fuck. The bathroom floor has caved in from the cat pee. So they have to step over a hole to use the toilet or they'll fall through into the fucking basement. The first night I was there, I took a shovel and broke the cat shit off their bedroom floor. Like it was on, they're like fucking, you know, petrified. Okay, so I can't tattoo. So I'm standing in that driveway. I just did fucking eight years. I did three and a half years in the hole. I'm freaking out. I'm freaking out. I'm out. You know, you go to the market, there's 5,000 toothbrushes. For eight years, they've been throwing a toothbrush in your little slot in the door. You don't get to pick fucking bristle this, soft bristle. You know, just, I mean, people don't think about it. all these fucking things are like, what the fuck? CDs had come out. They, I was tripping on those. I got to do something about these kids. They're in a bad spot. They're living with, you know, it's bad. I mean, it's really bad. So that's weighing on my shoulders. So I have a friend named old man Jimmy Thomas. I've shown pictures of him on my Instagram. So fucking legend in the system. He went to Quentin in 1948. He had a life sentence in Folsom. Was there when Johnny Cash played. Legend. And me and him hit it off. We met in Terminal Island and we, we really hit it off. And uh, he was out the same time I was out. He had gotten out and got a state case. Well, he was out. So I'm sitting there freaking out about my kids, can't get a job, not allowed to tattoo. What am I going to do? My kids are living in this house with 60 cats. They're being tortured. My oldest daughter, she had like a sheen of sweat on her face constantly. They smelled bad. They get teased at school. It is fucking awful. Now, I can't call the authorities, even though it's a foster home, because I don't want it to impact them worse. You know, what if you fuck? I mean, they aren't being raped. Like, you can rat on them and say, hey, these false romance 60 cats, but maybe they'll put my daughters in a worse position. I don't know what the fuck to do. So I'm standing in the driveway. Jimmy Thomas calls me and he goes, hey, Shane, this guy owes me a pound of meth. Do you want to go with me and we'll collect the meth and we'll start dealing? And I, I hate meth. I hate speed. I, I'm an opiate guy. So I'm thinking, well, I won't do it. So cool. Yeah, I'll go with you. We'll make some money. Maybe I can get my kids out of here. So he goes, okay, I'll meet you in the morning. I'll come by, pick you up, and we can go. I'm like bitching. That night, a guy named Nick Hovick, who I still found me on Instagram, Nick Hovick, hey, Nick, good dude, called me up and he said, hi, my name's Nick Hovick. Uh, Shane, are you looking for work? And I'm like, yeah. He goes, okay, tomorrow, meet me at this address and you can start working, like doing demo and jackhammer, you know, just construction. So I called Jimmy and I say, hey, Jimmy, listen, man, I can't go with you tomorrow. This dude called me. He's going to give me a job. I got to try this square shit, please. I, I, you know, and he's like, don't worry about it, Shane. No problem. So I go to work. The job works out. Me and Nick hit it off. I have the job for a couple of years. I get my kids out of there. But that's another story. But four days later, I get a phone call from Jimmy. And he's like, hey, hey, youngster or whatever he called me. And then he was, ah, electrical shocks. That's what he said. And I go, what the fuck? What's wrong with you? He goes, I'm in the hospital with a broken neck. I didn't go that morning. So he took another guy my age that from our little clique, you know, and they were driving 70 miles an hour in the rain to go get the speed, lost control of the car, 
hit a telephone pole and killed the kid in the passenger seat. What the fuck? That would have been me. That was me. Then Jimmy pulled the kid from the passenger seat into the driver's seat before the cops got there with a broken neck, mind you, to get not get a vehicular manslaughter. My life would have added up to Jimmy, God bless him, not getting a case. That would have been it. That was a real eye-opener. That was a real eye-opener to always be where you belong. Okay, now, I'm on parole. Two parole officers, they say I can't work. Had I gone with Jimmy to get that fucking dope, I wouldn't have been where I belonged at all, right? That was a big eye-opener for me, man. I mean, I would have been that kid in that car. You know, I got my kids back eventually. Um, about three months later, I took them from the house. And I didn't bring them back. Got them. I would go over there. And I, I'd walk in the back door because the front door, they had a dog boarded up on the front steps of the house that was shitting on itself. I killed the dog. I had to. I brought a vet, this chick I was fooling around with, to look at the dog. And she said, Shane, that dog's crazy because it's been shitting in its den for like 10 years. You know, they can't. She got some injections. Right. And I pulled the dog up over the thing and tied it off and me and her killed the dog. And I thought that had I done that, that they would get rid of the boards and make the front steps now. So my kids could, because my kids had to go through the back, through a junkyard of cars, up these stairs that had no railing to get home. And I mean, you know, they're eight and 12 and they're running around. They don't know any, they don't know any different. That's the life they know, you know, because part of the deal I made when Casey left the kids there and the state jumped in and grabbed them is I signed away my parental rights. With the understanding that the judge would make a recommendation that they would stay together in placement when they place in places. That to me, I mean, I'm facing 29 bank robberies. I mean, I don't even know how long I'm going to be gone when this happened. You did? Like, all I was thinking is at least if they have each other. I don't know. Maybe I'm not. Maybe I'm going to get 25 years. I might never see them. But if I can keep them together. So I traded my parental rights for that. However, you know, like I said, when the first day I got out, I went and saw them. But um, right away, it's the first thing I did. And one time I went through the back door and I went in the house and the foster mother had Arwen by her hair, my oldest daughter, and she was spraying Windex in her eyes. And I'm like, what fuck? the fuck are you doing? What the fuck? And I thought, man, I got to get him out of here. I got to get him out of here. Then the next maybe two weeks or three weeks later, I come to the pad walking up the driveway and Arwen, her thumb is huge and black and she's crying and she's like, Papa, Papa, please give me an aspirin. Papa, help me. You know, I go, what happened? She slammed her thumb in the car door and the foster father is looking at her going, wah, wah, like teasing her. And I'm like, which one is the fucking little kid? So then I told the girls, listen, man, get whatever, get your toothbrushes. They knew, they knew what I was saying is, I'm taking you. So I took them. They could come at that time. By that time, it was like three months after I'd been out. They could spend the night one night. So that was when I was coming to pick them up to spend the night. So they come to the house. They spend the night. The girl I'm with, she doesn't want to be their mom. And she says that to me. And I go, okay. So I give them each a plate. Tell them this is your plate. Eat off plate. You know, that kind of thing. But um, Sunday comes around. Foster parents call me. They say, hey, man, bring the kids back. And I Tell him, fuck you, I ain't bringing them back. And I go to sleep, calls back. Listen, Shane, I'm going to call the authorities. You need to bring those kids back. Yeah, fuck you, I'm not bringing them back. I go back to sleep. Three in the morning, social workers call. 
I guess, emergency social workers. I don't know. It's about three, four in the morning. And they're like, Shane, we'll put you back in prison. You need to take those kids back over there. And I go, well, check it out. Go over to that house and look at what's going on over there. And if you sit after you see that, I'll take them back. And she said to me, almost mean, I will. Because, you know, they don't have to do that. They just could come arrest me. You dig? They don't have to do anything I'm saying. Don't get me wrong. I'm not like, you need to go look. You know, I mean, it's a miracle that they did that. They went over and looked at the house. 60 cats. No fucking good bathroom. Nowhere for them to bathe. Blah, 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 blah. I got the kids back that day in court. They had an emergency hearing and gave them to me. So when you get back into that whole thing about, you know, people did time or were gangsters so their kids don't have to be. My kids, my they, they don't. Stormy has two tattoos. Arwen has none. Lizby has one on her toe. Uh, Kaney has one small one on his back. I mean, they aren't into tattoos because they grew up around it. There's nothing wrong with it. Don't get me wrong, but they just ain't into it. None of them have been in trouble. I got to tell you, the one side of my life, I still have guilt that they went through that, especially Arwen. She really suffered. I mean, there was... When she first came and lived with me, about every week, she would get this guttural voice and she'd be like, nobody loves me. Like we'd be in the car and she'd be behind me. She'd kick the seat, say, nobody loves me, nobody. And she'd just fucking turn into like Linda Blair from The Exorcist for hours. And I would have to wrap my arms and legs around her so she wouldn't fight and lay on the bed with her and just say, it's not your fault. It's not your fault. I love you. I love you. It's not your fault. It's not for hours. And she'd get better and she'd cry. Next week we'd do it again. Next week we'd do it again. And slowly, two weeks, a month, two months, and then none. So we got through it. But it, it wasn't easy. But we got through it, man. How is the recollection today of those times? Funny that you mentioned that. Because not good. I remember everything. I have one of the memories, you know. They remember some, but not much, because whenever I talk to them, I'm like, hey, do you remember this? Nope. Nope. I think it's almost like a safety mechanism. Mm. You know, now, one of my daughters, Arwen, who suffered the most, it's true, she is really about appearances. She has to live in a certain neighborhood, you know. She, she doesn't even, like with me, she's almost embarrassed of the way I look. So that's like a little, God bless her and I love her. Uh, I don't think she'll listen to this, but even if she does, she knows. I mean, I'm not saying anything that she doesn't know, I know. But she's kind of a little bit more concerned with what people think. Stormy doesn't care. But if that's the worst thing, God bless her. Because let me tell you, when she was 12 and she had that sheen on her face, I remember looking at her thinking, I'm going to lose her. 12 years old, 13, she's going to meet an 18-year-old dude. 14, she's going to be on the street selling her ass. 15, she's going to be in a body bag. You know, I mean, it's that's where they come from. You know, my grandfather told me one time, God, he was a good man. He told me, you know, Shane, you know when you see bums on the street and these people, try to remember they came from somewhere. At some point, a mother loved that. You know, like it was the pride and joy. And at some point, they come from somewhere, man. Try to remember that. And that was a lesson I always remember. It's easy to detach, you know. In, in my personal history, my dad ended up like that. He ended up homeless and kind of like died that way. But so 
I see from the inside how a normal person with a normal life and a normal family can lose everything in an instant, you know, and then ended up like that. We tend to see, you know, a homeless person like they were born this way. So they're almost like a low, a lower class, like an inferior species or something. But you do not realize that maybe that person before had had a, had a business or something. And let me tell you, like when I was living in Denmark, at some point I, mo- I was moving out and I was selling all my shit. And I was a bit in a rush. So I was like, I don't mind to make a bunch of money on this stuff, even if I sell it under price, as long as somebody come and pick it up, right? Yeah, so yeah. a lot of uh, there is a lot of refugees now in the in Scandinavia because they come from Syria and from this place where they had the war, right? So sure. a bunch of this family came to see the furniture and stuff. And there was this man that had like he couldn't walk really because his back was fucked. And then I'm talking to this guy and the guy told me his story. And basically this guy was coming from Syria and he had like a factory, like actually furniture factory with employees and all of that. And then the war came, they took it all, so they lost everything. They had a house or property, and then. On the way to Europe, he fell from a boat or something and he broke his back. You know, so now you see this person and you're like, oh, these guys are poor. And you almost feel like they were born poor. But it's like, no, man, this guy was hey, more hey. rich than you, you know, and just hey. something taken, took it all. You know, so it's it's a good exercise to make and be like, dude, remember, these people were like you. <laughs> like, um, you know? Now, on the flip side of that, you know, they, they let a bunch of felons out because of the virus. And I'm pretty upset about that. People would think I would be pro. Oh, good, let them out of jail, right? But them dudes, they did something to end up in there. Now, there's lots of innocent people in prison. I know this. I know people that have went for years. But in the same token, a lot of those guys, that's a choice they make. And there's a fine line to walk to remember that. Because, you know, these guys you feel sorry for, but these guys... Try to remember they did it to themselves. But yeah, my my grandfather taught me they all came from somewhere. Somebody loved them at some time. And it's easy to not see that when you see them dirty and homeless and drinking a uh, short dog. But, you know, they all came from somewhere, man. Sound like a good guy, your grandfather, huh? Yeah, well, the very little he died when I was 12, but he's the one that taught me to read. He wanted me to be a lawyer. He taught me to read everything. That's... I quit school like in eighth. I think I was just starting eighth grade or seventh grade. But he taught me just read, just read, just read. And so I read. I'm insane. Like I read like five books a week. Like I, I'm always reading. And a lot of it, sometimes I'm rereading. Like I read the same book like eight times because of shit I missed. I'm not talking novels. You know, I'm talking like true mm-hmm. history or, yeah. you know. There's a lot of really good books about certain battles in their own words where they get soldiers to say what they saw rather than, you know, you just hear the 32nd Mechan uh, Infantry went around to the left while the, you know, I'm into personal histories. What's happening a lot is people are using the Internet to look up what Wagner had a shop at you know, one, two, three, Chatham Square. And then it says here in 1932, he moved to five, six, eight. And that's all cool. You dig? But what did it feel like to walk in a shop? I mean, that's great. All that technical information is fucking wonderful. But I want to know, what was it like to fucking get tattooed? You know what I mean? Like, because you, you get a lot of historians, they're, what they are is they're good researchers. But I'm into... Bert Grimm told Bob Shaw, Bob Shaw told Bob Roberts, Bob Roberts told me, this is where yellow and roses came from. Or, you know what I mean? I'm into that, the passed down history. I don't mean to jump around, but 
my grandfather taught me to read is how he got there. Taught me to read incessantly. But, you know, he wouldn't take high blood pressure medication. He was fucking my age, had a massive heart attack and was gone like that. He didn't like that they made him tired. Now, had my grandfather just taken that fucking medication, I might have got him. My life might be completely different. I don't blame him. I love my life. It's funny how the trajectory of lives, maybe you were headed one way and then one little thing happened and you ended up. It's interesting sometimes to think a little about it, but then you just leave it there because otherwise you get lost into what if, what if. How is your life today? Because obviously music is very big for you, right? And yeah. how is your life today with tattooing, music, and family? How is how you feeling? The only problem I'm having is this lockdown, which means I actually have no problems. You did? I'm writing articles for, uh, Patrick has a newspaper called Tattoo Today that I have a column in. And uh, this other guy, I think they have the Tattoo Flash Collective. They're doing a magazine called Heart's Eye. Um, not plug, I'm just saying, you know. Um, today, besides this, everything's uh, good, you know. My, the highlight of my life seeing my grandkids you know the record has done very well but i didn't make any money on it but you know i never expected to that's not why i did it you dig what i'm saying again that translates into money is not wealth instagram's been good for me i got a lot of, of people you know but you know i think just with that with anything and i think you know that because i get the feeling from you the same feeling all you gotta be is real The rest will follow, man. Just be real. The rest will follow. All you got to be is real. And the rest, don't worry about it. You know yeah, I agree, mean? agree, agree 100% with that. Because the way I see it as well is that, you know, the good things, or the best things for that matter, but the good things, they should be a byproduct of you having your mind and your heart in the right place rather than the, the goal. So yeah. let's say you want to you wanna have a successful business, right? If your goal is to have a successful business, what you're going to build every action that you take, every words that you say is built on interest. It's like, I want to get something out of this. But instead, if you don't think about that and you just think about being your best self, giving the best service, you know, the best tattoo you can, the best organization, that, that thing follows. It's the same thing like in a relationship, right? It's like right. if you're the best self, then the relationship is going to work. You know, otherwise it doesn't, it doesn't flow, you know? So the way I see it is like this, you try, you work on yourself to be your best self and everything follows, you know? You only keep what you give away. People don't realize that. You know, when my father died, he had so much and he died with nothing, nothing. And he spent time collecting all this stuff, God bless him. But in the end, he went out like he came in with nothing. So you're renting this stuff. So when people get so into the stuff, I mean, hey, it's comfortable. Or they get so into, oh, I gotta have 500 Paul Roger machines. Man, I gotta have them. You're borrowing them, man. Because you can't take them with you. You dig? You can enjoy them. And God, but, you know, there's a lot of things when I got sober. I, I'm not a big meeting guy. I do think they're great, 12-step meetings. Because you'll go, hell, anything positive. I don't care what it is. Fucking, if, if it's drinking snake blood, if it's positive, cool. But uh, they have a saying, you only keep what you give away. And that was real big with me. Another thing my grandfather taught me, he said, don't hold on to a $5 bill too hard because your hand won't be open to get $100. <laughs> That's fucking great, man. That is absolutely great. Things, oh, yeah, that's right. 
because that's right that's right yeah those little things i think as far as tattooing i think it's important for us to listen to hanky people like hanky his age candy everett bob they have valuable things to teach us i think there is true that's that whole uh, thing if i only knew uh when i was young what i know now you did but that's the price of growing old you get the wisdom that you can't have as a kid on those lines let me ask you like is there something that you an advice that is being given to you or a lesson that you learned or something that you understood that got stuck with you and you keep going back to that as a as a thing to follow something positive that you're like oh that really come helpful to me often um another good lesson and it's one that we should learn you know every time like i'm with some chick and i really dug her and we had this long relationship or whatever and then we broke up and i'm devastated or you know heartbroken whatever it is i was just telling somebody that's going through that right now i know it's hard to do but if you can try to relish the fact that you were even loved by that person or gave love to that person or in that and that thank god you got back Yeah, like maybe they're dead now even. Like relish the fact that you even had shared that moment with them. I think see that's part of a really hard thing in the human condition. It's very difficult. I think, you know, Buddhist monks I think get it. I don't know if they all do, but we're such selfish people as human beings, you know what I mean? We fall in love and we just got to have it and then it, we get our heart broken and of course we get our heart broken. But it, it, it's very hard to just take that and then just remember, hey, man, at one moment in time, you guys were so deeply in. You did, yet you shared that with her. You yeah, great, I, great to you for what you had rather than what you lost. Yeah. Oh, that's the, the, big, the big, that's funny. Okay, there you go. Gratitude. To be grateful, that is the key to everything. Like every time, you know, because we're such a modern society, you know, for, for centuries, people, I don't care what religion, when they sit down to eat, first thing they do is thank their deity for providing the meal and the company. And you know what I mean? We, that's not so much anymore. Now, you know, people just get their food and they just go. And truth is, that kept gratitude in the forefront of their life. Even as farmers, they're going to have a bountiful crop. They would pray, be bountiful. Now, I don't know about a bearded fucking guy in the sky. I got a really good story. I don't know. I've never told this story completely. I actually wrote it as a play. But I, when I was in the shoe in solitary confinement, we were fighting with the guards. Bad. Now, prison's divided by race. I'm in a single cell. It's at the end of the tier. It has a shower built in it. So they don't have to move me to the shower because every day they come every other day they come and handcuff you and move you to the shower i was in a cell with another white guy richie mcmahon who was like the shot caller for the dwb at that time i don't know about now i don't know anything that was in 1992 so let me clarify that so i'm not ratting on anybody we got caught making knives we were trying to kill the guy that lived above us and uh they caught us he ratted that he thought that's what we're doing they raided our cell So they put me on a single cell status. Now, in that system, I had started in Terminal Island. Now I'm in Lewisburg, Pennsylvania. And I had been shipped and moved all the way there. 
there was a lieutenant there that also was in Terminal Island that hated me. And there was a black guy there. And uh, he was on a cocaine case. And he was like me. He was a very young kid who got into the groups, his race. And as we got shipped, me and him, disciplinary transfers, we rose up in our races, you know, groups. You dig what I'm saying? Yep. Now, me and him are in the hole together. We've known each other for seven years with a lieutenant that's known us for seven years in the system, all the way from the West Coast to the East Coast. And we're fighting with the guards over ice cream. They didn't serve us ice cream on Christmas Eve. So we're fighting with them every chance we get. So about midnight, my cell door opens and a body comes flying in and they slam the door shut. And I jump up and I bang on the door and I'm like, get rid of this fucking guy. Get rid of this guy. I don't know who it is. I don't know why he's in there. I'm just like, get him out of here. And, and they just laugh at me. They go, ha, 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 and home. Have fun, you two, and walk away. It's the black guy. Now, we don't sell together in there. Black sell with blacks, white sell with... Okay, so they put us in the same cell together and they only feed us one meal. Holy so fuck. They're trying to get us to fight, right? Now, this guy had just come from the four-point tie-down room. They have a four-point tie-down room. And what it is is, like, when you're in there and you're fighting the squad, they get these fucking suits on, and they come and they rush your cell. It's called a cell extraction. And what they'll do is they, they try to come down so you won't know they're coming, but it's hard sometimes. It depends on how much you're going off. And they'll sneak the key in the door, and then a lieutenant will stand in front of the door and go, you know, inmate in home, 827 We're giving you a direct order to cuff up. What do you say? And you go, fuck you. And then they open <laughs> and they take you and tie you, chain you to, by, you know, it's called ambulatory restraints. You can be in there for a few days. Uh, they're supposed to tell region every 12 hours they got you tied down. Anyway, I only say that because they brought the guy from there. That's where they brought him from when they threw him in my cell. This is that lieutenant. I don't, I don't even want to say his name. He threw him in my cell. Okay. They walk away. Ha ha. I don't fuck you. I realize it's this kid. He's not a kid. We're both almost, we're in our early 30s or, or 29, you know, almost 30. And they had beaten him with the nightstick. They had spread his legs and beat his balls with the size of fucking golf, like uh, a grapefruit. Fuck. He had to sleep on the shitter. So that his shit could hang in. You dig what I'm saying? He couldn't even lay on the... You follow? Yeah. So now he's got all the black dudes sending kites to him saying, kill that. Now, if you are a good target in there, you're called a trophy. Like, a you know, an animal trophy. You know, oh, that's a good trophy. You know, get that guy. You dig? So I'm a good trophy. He's a good trophy. I, I always try to hate saying these stories because it make, I, I'm trying to pound my chest. I'm just... This is the way it was. Okay, so he's got all the black guys sending word to him. Get Shane. He's a good trophy. I got the white guys sending word to me. Get him. He's a good trophy. Me and him make a pact of peace. That while we're in the cell, we ain't going to fight. We're just going to weather the storm. So during it, we talk. And we talk a lot. We talk for hours. What else is there to do in there? And, you know, we argue sometimes because, you know, he's really into killing white people. He wants to see the streets four feet deep with white blood to avenge the slavery. And, hey, God bless him. It's just the way, you know, it's just it's a very rough environment in there. It's very racially divided. So then he says to me one time, we're kind of arguing. 
and he says to me, uh, hey, Shane, when you pray, do you pray that was it a Viking God? Is it like, you know, Odin with his fucking helmet and his fucking braids and his fucking one eye? And, and I go, hey, fuck you, man. I don't pray. You've never fucking heard me pray. And he goes, oh, no, I've heard you pray, Shane. And I go, you have never fucking heard me pray. And he goes, yeah, he used to be next door to me in a cell on another tier. He goes, when that squad was coming in, beating your ass, I heard you say, oh, God, not again, when they were coming. Ain't that a prayer? You're praying, oh, God, not again, right? I mean, you're praying. I was like, fuck, he's right. He said, the only God that can save you is the God within you. You need to realize that or you're going to spend the rest of your fucking life in. So, you know, time goes by. They take him out of my fucking cell. I, I weather some flack from the other white dudes for not getting him. He weathers some flack. Never see him again. That's it. Love that guy. That guy saved my life. Because those words, only God that can save you is the God within you. That made me start trying to get out. Trying to make my life better. Trying, taking responsibility that was on me. It wasn't fucking destiny that brought me to that. Maybe it was destiny, but it isn't some outside. It's me. And then I realized, holy shit. The Bible, it says God made man in his image. I don't think he meant that he's got arms and legs. and It's that he gave him free will. You are God. You know, when I was a kid on the street in the 70s, we were vegetarians and we got all into spiritual hunting, you know, like uh, the great white brotherhood. I don't mean white skin. I mean, white light and Elizabeth Clare prophet, uh, the self-realization fellowship and Paramahansa Yogananda and then movement for spiritual inner awareness. We got all up into that shit. And there was a guy that was a rainbow warrior in the great white brotherhood. And he told me, he'd tell me the secret name of God. And I was so fucking into hearing it. I thought, Oh, I'm going to find this fucking great thing out. And holy shit. I've done it. You know, they, they give us things like, you know, if you get in danger, you say, you know, Lord Michael before, Lord Michael behind, Lord Michael left, Lord Michael above, Lord Michael below, Lord Michael, Lord Michael, wherever I go, you know, the angels, you could invoke the angels to protect you and all this stuff. I don't quite have that right, but it's kind of like that. So, you know, and, and, and you could say things like, um, by my divine right and the power of my spoken word, you know, this kind of shit. Spells, white light spells. So he's going to tell me the secret name of God. And it's in, in Hebrew, it's yod Hey vod Hey, which I might not be pronouncing tonight. But it's I am that I am. So later, and I'm in the joint, and homeboy tells me, you know, the only God that can get you out is the God within you. Well, the truth is, man, we it's, it's on us. You know, I'm not disrespecting anyone's spirituality. And, you know, if you get strength and power from praying to a bearded dude in the sky... God bless you or, you know, bless you, whatever. But that woke me up. That guy saved my life. My enemy saved my life. Hadn't he told me that, I would probably be doing a life sentence right now. My kids wouldn't be okay. It's one of many things. Don't get me wrong. It's not the only, but the only God that's going to save you is the God within you. It's crazy, man. Like, one thing that I really like is stoicism, you know. Um, and one of the things I like the most is the, the, the motto of, like, the obstacle is the way. Because over and over it proves right again, like in your case, you know, that guy which you was possibly your worst enemy is like, okay, black guy, the the I miss trophy. So you're like, this is gonna be the worst. It actually turned out being the best. 
It's crazy, isn't it? Absolutely. And recently, I looked him up. He's been in solitary confinement. He, we had the same kind of sentence, you know. So we would both get out in like 10, 12 years, you know, that kind of sentence, 8 to 12 kind of thing. I found him in 2016, 17, maybe two years ago, three years ago. He's been 16 years in shoe in a prison upstate. Jesus. And I, and I thought to myself, wow, so he could save me, but he can't save his fucking self? You dig? He might not even remember the con Someone told me I should get a hold of him and write him and thank him. And I'm, I was like, you know, he might not even remember it the way I did. But for whatever reason, that's the way it happened for me. Like you said, the worst possible thing turned out to be the best possible thing. Well, that was my, from my perspective, from his, it might have been, yeah, I remember that time we had a truce and big deal, motherfucker. You know what I mean? Like, step off, yeah. man. You know, who knows? That's but, crazy, man. Let me ask you one last thing. If somehow, after, because obviously, you know, you you learn a lot about yourself. And somehow, if you could go back now and talk to yourself when you were like 14, 15, 16, and uh, give yourself an advice with what you know now, what would you tell yourself? Don't shoot up drugs. That simple. Had I not shot up ever, but said just kept it with weed. I would not have ended up where I ended up. And maybe my talents, maybe, maybe not. Maybe they would have gone in a, a younger, my record would have came out. or You know what I mean? But I thought when my head hits the pillow, I got no complaints, man. Not really, because I never thought I'd live this long anyway. So it's all gravy now. Um, but I would tell myself not to shoot. I know it's that's that you'd think it'd be a more profound thing than that, but you can trace every single problem, big problem I had to that. No question. I would have never robbed anybody, anything hadn't that stuff chemically changes me. You know, people meet me that knew me then, and they're just like, you are such a different person than when you were an addict. I mean, I did not give a Terminal Island, I got a I got a bag of Coke, you know, and I don't like doing that without heroin, but I got a bag of Coke. I went to a guy, he had a syringe, a little dinky. I said, hey, man, can I use your outfit? He goes, listen, I want to tell you something. I have AIDS. I grabbed the outfit from him and said, I don't care, and used it. Damn. Didn't get it, but that, when I look back and I think, oh. Oh, my God. You know what I mean? What the fuck was I thinking? I fucking, I mean, it was a shitty bag of Coke. It was garbage. I mean, it was not, and I, I risked everything, everything, everything for that little fucked up high that wasn't even, that's how much of a fucking shithead I was. So, yeah, that's what I would say. All I hope, I mean this with all my heart, I hope somebody hears it. And somehow people sometimes say, Shane, you know, why do you always tell prison stories? Or why do you, you know, it's been, I've been out a long time, been out 26 years. Maybe because you only keep what you give away. Maybe that story will make some other guy that's like me, fucking up in jail, wherever, realize he can do it too. If I could do it, he could, he did. I mean, that's the best part of everything. Thank you very much. It's such a full life and, you know, you, you're a very intelligent man, so you convey your message very well. So thank you very much for that. Thank you for letting me. Thank you for letting me.